Welcome to the podcast of Sozo Church. For more information about Sozo, please visit sozosmtx.com. Do you know how free you are? Do you know how forgiven you are? Do you know how pure you are? If the blood of a goat could take away the sins of an entire nation for a year, what did the blood of the lamb do? <laughs> he can clean you up faster than you can mess yourself up. Super good at that. I uh, just leaned over to Joel right before this introduction. I said, we're going to do a mass prophetic activation here today. We're going to get you guys all prophesying before the day is over. By all, I mean all. If you ever want to expose unbelief in the church, just point out scriptures with the word all. <laughs> Man, I'm feeling ornery. I don't know. I just have to like go ahead and repent, confess right now, because this could get dangerous, super dangerous. I want you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 48. I want to read a scripture to you, and then uh, we're going we're gonna to do some prophetic activation here. Just a second. I want to show you something maybe you've never seen before. Maybe you have. Maybe you've all seen Isaiah 48, which I hope. But if you haven't, you should. Um, you understand that God's always doing new stuff, right? I'm a huge, huge fan of church history. And um, <clears throat> if you've not read any of the early fathers, you really should. Uh, because it's amazing what came out of the mind and hearts of people who were not distracted by Facebook. They just had nothing but time to just soak in the presence of the Lord and just get in the, the oil of anointing. And like Joaquin said today, start an oil fire and just get lit. And then just write from that secret place. And, uh, and some of these people didn't have access to the scriptures as you and I do, but then they, they ended up having to completely rely upon revelation of the Holy Spirit. And based upon that revelation, they unveiled things that, that we can see were actually validated in the scriptures. I love to read the early fathers. I like, I like um, have, how many of you have read the letter of Clement of Alexandria to the church in Corinth? Anybody done that? All of you? Good. You should. You should. You should read this. One of the first, the first church writings that we have Clement knew Peter and Paul before they were martyred. And there was a, oh, I'm talking about this, but this is for somebody in here. There was a church split that happened in Corinth. The very first church split that we have on record happened when young leaders saw old leaders as being irrelevant. And they took the old leaders and they kicked them out. And the young leaders basically staged a coup and they took over the church. Well, Clement of Alexandria up the road was really, really not cool with this. And he wrote a letter that you actually all should read. It's available free online on the internet. It's really good to, to, to check out. What he simply said to these guys is this. Hey, the church is the body of Christ. And when you divide the church, you do literal violence to the body of Christ. And then you just kind of let that hang. Well, to these young leaders' credit, they repented, went back to the old leaders, reformed the church, healed the rift, and the church didn't divide again for two centuries. For the next over 200 years, the letter of Clement of Alexandria was read in every known Christian church almost every week. It was that important. It was that big of a deal. They counted this to be like the thing that actually was going to hold the body of Christ together. And in that unity, 
in all, all the way up until the third century or fourth century, beginning of the fourth century, the church actually had no record of division or split at all and turned the world upside down. And, and, and they became absolutely unstoppable until uh, 312 Constantine, he decides it's time to make uh, Christianity the, the global religion. Everybody has to be a Christian, whether you like it or not. Forced evangelism. And, and then uh, the Council of Nicaea in 325 basically established what we we're going to believe. And in 325, we actually stopped reading the letter of Clement. We just quit. We figured, hey, we all know what we believe now. Everybody's a Christian. The church will never divide again. It will always be united. And so we stopped reading it. And then somewhere around 1517, a guy named Martin Luther decided to start and stage what ended up becoming the Protestant Reformation. I was in Wittenberg, Germany on Reformation Day at midnight uh, in Martin Luther's church. Uh, Luther, phenomenon, but not perfect. And if you've read his stuff, you know that his last two writings were just horrible. I mean, you should have just quit before the last two. Um, proof positive that any good sermon can go bad with the phrase, just one more thing. So, so Luther, but Luther launches in, in 1517, he launches what we know as the Protestant Reformation. So, so I am in, I am in uh, Luther's church, myself and... Uh, Gentleman who used to be a theologian uh, from Princeton Theological Seminary, who I work with, and Dr. William Lewis. Uh, he's more educated than I'll ever be, and but I get a chance to work with him, and just love this this opportunity to collaborate. And then I'm with a gentleman from here in Austin. Some of you may know Thomas Cogdell, uh, who's part of the Austin House of Prayer for many many years, and then another friend of ours. So there's four of us, and it's at midnight. We're in Wittenberg, Germany, over there in Eastern Germany, where it used to be Eastern Germany. Still looks just colorless and gray and lifeless, except for these old, big old churches. And we go to Luther's church. It's freezing cold. It's in the middle of the night, and nobody else is at the church. But it's lit and open. And there's a German caretaker in there. And he, uh, he opens the doors for us. And we can, can we come in and pray? And he goes, yeah, we actually opened it up, believing that there would be many, many people who would want to come in and pray. But apparently, it's just the four of you. And so there we are in Wittenberg, Germany, the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. It's about to be midnight. He says, you can go anywhere in the building you want. So we're going to walk and pray. He says, you can go anywhere in the building you want. Just, you just can't you know, go up to where the Bible is up in, in Luther's pulpit. You can't do that. <clears throat> well, Dr. Lewis, is, he's older. And you know, the older you get, the less you care about rules. And so the idea was that at midnight, we're going to gather together in the center of the room. We're just going to pray because this, this moment, this place in time represented a time when the church was challenged and, and, and when it wouldn't succumb to the challenge, it actually blew up, splintered, absolutely blew up. It's because of that moment, we actually have the Bible in our own language. It was a fascinating, uh, amazing, amazing thing. And so... Here it comes midnight, and myself and Thomas and our friend are all standing down in the the center of the church. And then up in the pulpit, so I can't find Dr. Lewis anywhere. And up in the pulpit, I realize he's crawled over the barricade. He's climbed up in the pulpit. He's opened up this big ancient Bible to John 14, 20, where Jesus says, In that day you will know I am in the Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. And this spirit-filled Presbyterian pastor from the United States holds his hands out and starts speaking in tongues. Midnight hits. Boom. 
And I felt the Holy Spirit say, what took the last Reformation 100 years will take the next 110. That was in 2017. Now, if I could have stood there that night and told you, two years later, Kanye West will lead more people to Jesus than any church in in America on any given Sunday. That Justin Bieber is holding prayer gatherings for 20 million Instagram followers. And the church is going, hey, hey, what about us? So that's what Reformation does. Reformation is when God shows up in places you don't expect and does things you would never do and kind of pretty much bypasses our systems. I mean, think of the incarnation. He sort of bypassed all of our neat systems. He just totally went around us. Guys, he didn't even include us in the plan. Men. I mean, stop and think about that for a second. 2,000 years ago, God decides to rent space in the womb of a, of, a, of a teenage virgin in the Middle East, and he never consulted a man on it. I think the question of whether or not women are qualified to carry the glory has been answered eternally, all right? <laughs> And certainly, if God thought that a woman was worthy enough to give birth to the word, she's got to be worthy enough to preach the word. That's what I think, at least. (laughs) The one conversation God has with Joseph is, hey, back off. This is me, all right? Rubber feet. I don't know. Something like that. So... So Martin Luther launches the Protestant Reformation, and the church blows up. Now we have 33,700-plus denominations registered with the IRS here in America. So if he thought he was bringing unity, he wasn't. He actually blew us up in, in, in a huge way, but I don't think God, God minds. He can bring unity overnight through surrendered hearts that have a revelation of his goodness and grace, and we heard a lot about that today. The letter of Clement of Alexandria was actually lost until 1623. And the Bishop of Constantinople uh, uh, gave, gave the Codex Alexandris, this beautiful Bible, to the King of England as a gift, just this random gift. And when he did that, he opens up the front cover of the Bible, and inside there is a copy of the letter of Clement of Alexandria. It's lost from 325 to 1623. It hasn't been read, hasn't been heard of, heard from. And suddenly, we have it all over again. And it's the mandate for apostolic succession and a challenge to unity in the body of Christ. And listen, that is exactly what God is doing. He's bringing us back to this place of just a fresh revelation of unity. Just this fresh revelation of the fact that each, each of us, it's almost like facets of a diamond. And as we arise and shine, we'll arise uniquely and differently according to who God has created us to be. All right? And when he shines through us, he will shine in ways that we would have never thought possible. He's doing new things you haven't seen at all. I know people say, wait, wait, the Bible says there's nothing new under the sun. Exactly. It is in the Bible. But you know where that is? It's in a book called Ecclesiastes. You know what else Ecclesiastes says? Don't give an inheritance to your kids and money is the answer to everything. Ecclesiastes is a fantastic example of what happens when a wise guy decides to stop tapping into the wisdom that's freely been given to him. And it's a gift to us that that book is included 
Because Proverbs is an example of Solomon when he's got a solid relationship with God. Song of Solomon is is an example of Solomon when he's got a relationship with God. Ecclesiastes is a great example of a person who had a relationship with God, but he got complacent and he got cynical. And he starts mixing his own flesh and his own bitter cynicism with genuine wisdom. And it's really hard to tell one apart from the other unless you really know the heart and the character of God. So quote Ecclesiastes to me to justify the fact that a creative God who is by nature love is not creating anymore is theologically not going to work for me, okay? You got to understand that Ecclesiastes is not the litmus test by which God is going to move. Nothing new under the sun. Let me read you another one. Isaiah chapter 48. You ready? Verse 6. You have heard, and look at this, and you, will you not declare it? Let's stop for a second. This line is a setup for Isaiah, the prophet, to respond to the word he's about to get. Uh, my dad used to have this saying, Bill, a thought left unsaid is as good as dead. You don't need to speak every dumb thing that comes into your mind. Good advice. I still use most of the time. But God will drop things into your spirit that don't carry weight and power until you let them move out of your mouth to create sound that enters into the atmosphere. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 10 says that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to principalities and powers in heavenly places. So the idea is this. In the old covenant, God would send messengers known as angels with messages for man. In the new covenant, he's filled you with his spirit, and now you have been given access to things angels long to look into. And now, instead of angels coming to you with a message, the angelic realm is essentially hanging out here in San Marcos or over your house or around your kids or whatever, and they're listening for something. They're listening for people who are directly connected with the Spirit of God to stop just thinking good thoughts about the Word and actually put it on their lips so that the angelic realm is clear of its assignment. Because there's no record in the Scripture that angels can actually read your thoughts. Psalm 103 is a good example of this. There's a section in Psalm 103 that says, Bless the Lord, you his angels, who excel in strength, who do his commandments, listening for the voice of his word. Now we know in the new covenant, the word is Jesus. The spirit of the resurrected Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, has now been made available to every one of us. And he's in you. And so when he's in you and he moves out from you, the way it works is through prophetic anointed declaration. That anointed declaration is what releases the kingdom. So Psalm 103, bless the Lord, you his angels who excel in strength, you do his commandments. How do you find out what they are? You listen for the voice of his word. Jesus is the word when you surrendered to the spirit of the resurrected Christ in you, and you begin to speak what's on his heart in the earth today, you become the voice of his word. So what is the angelic realm listening for? They're listening for you to catch the heart of God and speak what he's saying so that they can be deployed to do their assignment. There's a lot of bored angels hanging out in the world, waiting for somebody to make a declaration of the intention of the heart of God. 
And I would say it like this. The Bible calls the angels ministering spirits. I'm not talking about angels, but calls angels ministering spirits as servants of flame of fire. Whenever we begin to unveil and unleash, like we did this morning, just the plans, the heart of God for people, regions, churches, communities, the, the destiny he has for this nation, for this world, as we begin to release those things, I believe the angelic realm just bends low, and it'll fill a room. And next thing you know, it doesn't matter how, how much you crank the AC down, it gets hot in the room. Why? Because there's servants or a flame of fire. Something about that. Just just feel the weight on it. There's something about just speaking out prophetically what God has spoken over you. So it says here, you have heard. In other words, it begins with hearing the voice. Now look at all of this. And you, will you not declare it? That's the trigger point to the power. That's what happens when you open your mouth, speak, and fire comes out. That's the deal here. I proclaim to you, look at this, new things. Everybody say new New things from this time, even hidden things which you have not known. Ready to get your mind blown? Verse 7, hang on. Look at this. They are created now and not long ago. God's not doing anything new. Wait, 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 wait. He says to Isaiah, Isaiah, I'm making new stuff. Yeah, yeah, God, I know. I mean, you know, you're always like, you know, reform, refurbishing. No, 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 no. I'm making new stuff now. Isaiah, you need to understand, when I created, I didn't quit after six days and never go back to creating again. I only took a break to give you permission to rest yourself, to show you how this thing works, that rest is just as much of an act of worship as all the work and all the labor that you do. And it's just really important that you prioritize it. But you understand, I'm, I'm still creator. And I'm still making stuff. And not only that, I'm making stuff now that has never been made before. Now look at this. I proclaim to you new things from this time. Even hidden things which you have not known. They are created now and not long ago. And before today, you have not heard them. So that you will not say, behold I knew them. You understand who he's talking to here? He's talking, he's talking to a prophet. And this is a prophet who prophesied things 500, 700 years into the future. And he prophesies new covenant revelation. And, and you know when he does it because he uses past tense as if it's already happened. Which is why Isaiah, Isaiah 53 says things like, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. It would have made zero sense in Isaiah's day to read that in a past tense, but it makes perfect sense on this side of the cross for us to look at it through a new covenant lens. Why? Because it's already happened. Yet God spoke it to Isaiah in a way that would have made no sense to his day. And yet he's faithful to put this down. And centuries later, it finally comes to pass. And so what God says here to Isaiah right in the middle of the Bible is, I'm making new stuff. They've never been made before. And not only that, the reason I've not made it before is so that you, as a prophet, would not be able to say, yeah, I saw that coming. In other words, I'm even going to stay one step ahead of the prophets, which is kind of cool, which means this. God is doing something in our day it will have no precedent for anything we have ever seen in the past. I believe we are living for a day 
And I believe I'm going to see it in my generation. I believe we are living for a day where we're going to see God do something that he has literally never done before. And when we look through the scripture to find chapter and verse to find a precedent for it, we aren't going to be able to find it. And you say, well, wait, 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 that, that, that's kind of dangerous, isn't it? It is, unless you know his heart, you know his character, and you know his voice. Which is why learning to have a relationship with the voice of God is such a big deal. In Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit is poured out upon the church, you had three manifestations. Tongues of fire fall on everybody's head. Actually, I think it was a violent thing, really. I don't think it was like, you know, in the coloring books, it shows like two little big flames just kind of flickering above everybody. And they kind of stand there looking all pious and happy, you know. Well, here's the thing. It, the Bible says that when the sound of the rushing mighty wind came in and tongues of fire fell on their head and they all started speaking in unknown tongues, the first thing that happened is they all ran outside. Now, if I look, if I look down at Joel and his head's on fire and he looks at me and my head's on fire, we're going outside. Stop, drop, and roll. I mean, we know how this goes, right? Why would I leave the room? Everybody's head just exploded in there. I mean, that's, it's like, that's the thing. You see this picture of a sound of a rushing mighty wind. You see this picture of tongues of fire falling on everybody's head. You see this picture of them speaking out in unknown tongues the wonderful works of God. And Peter stands up and he does actually a theological he makes a major theological error here. You hear the sarcasm in my voice. This is what he stands up and says. This is that which is spoken of by the prophet Joel. He actually, prior to that, he goes, hey guys, <laughs> heads up, these folks aren't drunk like you think they are. In other words, they looked absolutely hammered out of their mind. These people aren't drunk like you think they are. This is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel, saying in the last days, I'll pour out my spirit on all Flesh. Everybody say the word all. What does that leave out? <laughs> Even Kanye? All right. In the last <laughs> wow. Whew. In the last days, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. And this says this. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. And your old men will dream dreams. Three manifestations. Prophecy, dreams, and visions. But what happened in Acts chapter 2? There's no prophecy, there's no dreams, there's no visions. You have tongues, the sound of wind, and fire. Yet by the power and the authority of the Holy Spirit, even though the lists don't match, and the new list of manifestations has zero scriptural precedent. It never been written about before. Peter, because he has a relationship with the heart of God and the Holy Spirit of God, is able to stand up and with authority goes, this is that. And I believe there are people who are going to see manifestations of the Holy Spirit that we literally have no precedent for. That's going to require people with connection to the heart of God to be able to look at a very confused and bewildered world wondering, going, what is going on here? And say, whoa, whoa, time out. This is that. But the lists don't match, Peter. It's the same spirit. And he does whatever he wants to. And according to Isaiah chapter 48, he can still do new stuff that's never been done before. Now, some of you, some of you have a revelation that has become a life message. And this is where I want to go with this today. You have a revelation that has become a life message. It's something that's in you. It's burning in you, but it seems so obvious. You just automatically think everybody else already knows all this. And so you hold on to it and, and, and you don't, 
you don't let it become like, I would say it like this. Your life message is like a zip file that feels really normal. And if somebody was to ask you to preach the gospel, you don't even need notes for it. Because it's your life. It's your story. It's your relationship with God. When somebody asks me to preach the gospel, it's, it's like they're asking me, would you tell me about the best friend that saved your life? I don't need notes for that. That's my story. That's my life. I know the narrative of that. I know how that works. I know, I know every, every part of that. I've lived that. Your life story will seem so obvious to you that you don't think anybody's going to want to hear it. You'll see a revelation that just, oh, everybody automatically knows this. No, it's something that God has hidden from before the foundation of the world that he wants to show you. And when it becomes spoken, the entire body of Christ suddenly goes, wow. I'll give you an example. If I was to say, major hero of mine, I know Joel's as well, uh, Bill Johnson. If I was to say, what's Bill Johnson's life message, what would you say? On earth, as it is in heaven. Where to get that? From the Lord's Prayer. Who in church doesn't know the Lord's Prayer? But it took one guy to go, hey, I think we've been going by this line a little too fast. Maybe we should like take a pause and see something here. And suddenly he drew the entire body of Christ to go, oh, oh, maybe, maybe. Maybe Jesus wasn't joking about that. Maybe we don't have to wait until we die to actually see the fruit of that. Maybe maybe we're actually the kingdom that brings this. How do we not see that? And some of the stuff that God is showing you that has become your life message is so obvious. You're not sharing it with anybody because you think everybody already knows this. But the entire angelic realm, heaven and earth, is just waiting for you to open your mouth and speak what's become so obvious to you. So that like a zip file, it's like uncorking a bottle. Suddenly, it's like you just thought there was just a little there, but there is so much more. So today, I want to prophesy into a bunch of life messages in this room. Because I feel like I was sitting there looking around the room today. I thought, I'm, I'm looking at a room full of leaders. Full of leaders. And if you don't think you are, you are the most qualified. Mm-hmm. All right, so we have an extra handheld microphone somewhere around here. I want you to answer this question for me. Every one of you, if you may, maybe take something to write with, to write on, get your iPhone, iPad, whatever you got. And I want you to answer this question. What's my life message in two sentences or less? What's my life message in two sentences or less? For me, you heard it last night. You're one with God in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, and he did that. God is better than you think, and you can't imagine him better than he is. No distance, no separation. These are words that catalyze my life. These are words that guide everything that I do. These are words that I live by. There's so much life on them for me. I'm giving you a chance to do some writing and just not pay attention to what I'm saying right now. But I want to ask you, what is your life message in a sentence or two? I'm going to ask you what those are, and we're going to hear from some people. Uh, some of you already know. When, when I asked you, you didn't even have to stop and think too much about it. How many of you, you, you already know your life message? All right. Um, I'm sorry. One more time. Give me your name again. Dustin. Thank you, Dustin. Yeah, I was right. I just wasn't going to guess. Okay, hands up. You already know your life message right off the top of your head. Dustin, go find somebody. I don't care who it is. Just get to him. Hi. 
Hey, what's your life message? To set people free. Set people free. Right. Elaborate on that for a little bit. Just give me a couple more lines on it. They would know Jesus Christ. Come on. In their hearts and that they wouldn't be limited by everything else that used to define them or oppress them. Beautiful. I bet you could preach on that for hours. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I've told her go too long. (laughs) To set people free. Do you understand? I said this last night. One of the highest values that God has is for freedom because God by nature is love. And love requires freedom in order to even be experienced. I mean, the importance of the ability for you to be able to say yes and no in your closest relationships is the, the, the freedom for you to actually experience being chosen, which is how you and I access love. If somebody has to choose you, you don't feel too loved by that. But if somebody desires to choose you, wants to choose you, wow. The Bible says who the Son sets free is free indeed. You pull Jesus into this place of freedom. As you reveal Jesus, you're going to set people free. And I feel like there's something amazing about the way that you have the ability to reveal Jesus. Because the thing that's the priority on your heart is the priority on his heart. And, and, and it's interesting because most people, when they would say the priority on their heart, if in one word, would probably be love or maybe joy. Freedom gets way down on the bottom of the list. Yeah, I believe it's the highest priority of a God whose heart is love. Because he didn't come to make us religious, he came to make us free. It's interesting because I think if you and I had the chance, if you say, well, if I could keep people from hurting one another, I would most certainly do it. People always ask me the question, why is there so much pain in the world? What's going on? It's freedom. Freedom. You know what pain does? Good choices and bad choices? They actually demonstrate to us how connected we actually are. Because the only reason you ever inflict pain is when you stop thinking about somebody else and you're completely thinking about self. Like what I'm doing doesn't hurt anybody. Next thing you know, people all around you are absolutely devastated. So what does it do? It demonstrates to us the fact that, that every choice that we make actually it connects to somebody else. Because even though there's distance and separation in the flesh, we're one spirit. It all testifies to unity. And we begin to realize, oh my goodness, I've caused pain in somebody's life. And then suddenly we turn that around and begin to say, okay, I'm going to now surrender my heart, my attitude, my actions, my word to release healing and grace into somebody's life. Now, the same effect that caused a destructive shatter like glass starts to put things back together. And it doesn't matter how much life has been shattered by the, by the abuse of freedom. The Holy Spirit comes and teaches us to manage our freedom, bring all those broken back to pieces back together, and let the light of Christ shine through it, and it becomes a kaleidoscope. And sometimes I think that's how the artist creates. But it takes people who know the value of freedom in Christ in order to do that. And I would say this, and I don't know anything about you, but you don't preach freedom Unless you felt bondage and you know the value. And, and I don't trust any preacher that doesn't walk with a little bit of a limp. If they don't, I just stand back and go, oh, okay, I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray. Peter says to, Jesus says to Peter one day, Peter, Satan is asked to sift you like wheat. Remember that? If I'm Peter, I'm going, you said no, right? Because we're friends. And he's the devil, right? So... 
Why are you even having a conversation? I don't understand what's happening right now. Here's what Jesus says to Peter. He goes, I'm going to pray for you. And when you return, strengthen your brothers. When you return, that implies restoration. Strengthen your brothers. That requires influence, which implies leadership. So Jesus looks at Peter, who hasn't even fallen yet, and he sees him as a restored leader before he's even fallen. So Jesus isn't threatened by Peter's failure because he knows who he is even before he fulfills that destiny. And that's what freedom is. Freedom is you looking past the failures that have happened and haven't even happened yet to speak into and release destiny over their life and invite them into a place where they surrender to it. Can't control them. Just invite them. Beautiful. Awesome. Bless you, man. Minister of freedom. I like that. Somebody else. Life message. I don't care. Pick somebody. Anybody you want. Um, my love story. Hi. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Come on. And the joy of the Lord is my strength. And this came about after my divorce. Before the divorce, I was riding the fence. And then after the divorce, it was either trust God or, you know, flounder. <laughs> And I chose to trust God. And as I, I learned to trust in him, that he would never leave me nor forsake me, oh, that yeah. I was his beloved. And he actually told me that several years ago. But, you know, it's just like, trust God. If you can't trust God, you can't trust anybody. As you're speaking, there's like a wave kind of going over this room. <laughs> just kind of, I can see it. I can see like the so, ripple effects. Is so, people just kind of going, oh, yeah. It's amazing. amazing trust. Amazing. Trust. Here's the thing about trust. One time I told my kids, I said, kids, love and grace, unconditional, but trust and respect are earned. And I felt the Holy Spirit laugh at me and say, wow, it's a good thing for you. I don't feel like that. This is the way the Lord talks to me. So I said, wait, wait, wait. I don't trust somebody unless they've done something to, to, to earn it. And he said, how do you give grace away? I just give it by faith. Trust and grace are the same. You give it by faith. None of us can truly be trusted. None of us. But when we trust, we're giving freedom. I'm giving you freedom to actually hurt me. When I trust you, I'm making myself vulnerable to whatever you choose. And what I'm actually putting on display is the strength of the grace and the anointing on my life and the fact that when, I, when I'm willing to trust you, I'm willing to trust him. And that's what you're going to do. You're going to impart trust to people who've lost it. And some of you have been hurt so bad you can't trust anybody. You need to find somebody like this because she carries a reservoir of trust. Let her lay hands on you. Say, I can't trust. Because a lot, a lot of times people say, I can't release grace because I can't forgive. And because I can't forgive and release grace, then I can't trust. You understand forgiveness is not the issue. Forgiveness is not the issue. I know forgiveness is a big deal, but forgiveness says you did this, therefore I'm going to forgive you for what you've done. But what God does is he goes beyond forgiveness to bring us what's called justification. Justification is a supernatural declaration of innocence. In other words, it's beyond forgiveness. And trust looks at a person as innocent. If you've hurt me, I don't trust you because even if I've forgiven you, I remember what you did. And we're going to create boundaries. But when I trust you, what I'm doing is I'm saying, I declare you're innocent. In other words, I'm going to choose to not hold any judgment against you, even for what you've been forgiven for. 
And I don't think we do that without an impartation of the Holy Spirit. And it takes people who have that grace of trust upon their life to release it. So if you have a hard time forgiving people, what's your name? Martha, stand up, stand up, wave at everybody in the room. See that hand? Go take that hand, right? Go take that hand and put it on your head and say, okay, I just need what you got. Supernatural gift of trust. I want to come and see you after this. All right. No, kidding. But I will. Uh, how, about, how about somebody over here? All the way in the back row right there. You were the first person with your hand up. So, Life message. Um, somebody asked me a long time ago, several years ago, Jamie, um, if you were to be, have a message, if God was going to use you in some way, what would your message be? And the first thing that came to my mind was I would teach people to understand how God loves them. Because I didn't grow up in a Christian home, and I grew up in a crazy, alcoholic, violent home. So there was, but the one thing I had as a child was God's love. And I, I held on to that my whole life. I grew Whoa. up very isolated and very alone because my father was very trying to raise the ranks. And so I had to keep all that private and quiet. And I got struck with the disease of alcoholism at a real early age. And uh, God saw fit that I got into recovery at 21 years of age. And I just celebrated 34 years of sobriety. Come on. <laughs> and the beautiful part of this is that God let me live my life consciously for the majority of my life. And that is seeing God's love in everything. And I had to learn that. It was not something that was instinctive. It wasn't something that was inherent. I had to learn to trust God's love. And I feel like in some way that God's going to use me to share how to do that for some of us that may not know how to get there because he wants that intimacy with us. He wants that core part of us. And he's given me that. And I walk in that freedom that even if I have transgressions or I stumble or I feel like there's something blocking me, he says, let's walk through this. Can you hear how this is her story? Can you feel this? This is like a river. You could do this for the next three or four days. <laughs> just talking about the love of God. Are you familiar with George and Banoff? Yes. Yeah. George and Papa of mine and just a dear friend. My favorite, one of my favorite George and Banoff stories goes like this. George is talking to a man who is Muslim. And he's arguing with him. And as a young believer. He's arguing with him and arguing. And the argument is going nowhere. He's trying to convince this, this young man that God loves him. And it's not going anywhere. And finally, he hears the Holy Spirit say, stop talking and hug this man. And Georgian grabs a hold of him and hugs him. The man immediately goes stiff. Georgian won't let go. And finally, the guy goes limp, lays his head on, head on Georgian's shoulder and starts weeping. Ends up giving his life to Christ from a hug. And afterwards, Georgian asks the question, says, Lord, I don't understand this. It didn't even involve any words. How did this work? And he says, it's because Allah does not hug these people. I feel like you're going to impart exactly what you want to do with the arms that you have. I think you're going to hug people into an awareness of the love of God. I was with a dear friend. Um, I took him to a conference a while back. He had just received Christ. And now we're sitting on the second row of this conference. And, and uh, 
um, there's, a, there's a period of time where the Holy Spirit starts moving in the room and he leaps over the front row of chairs. It wasn't even like an altar call. There was no, he just, he just had to get closer. He leaps, and this is an intelligent guy. He's like a, a producer, film producer uh, with Disney. And he leaps over this front row of chairs, runs to the front, and now he kneels down and he's just sitting there just crying out, weeping to God. Now, about 2,000 people crush in behind him because they see one guy go and it's just like, <laughs> so... Heidi Baker comes walking over to him. He's the first guy up there. And she reaches over to my friend Tim, and she just takes him by his face, and she lifts his face. And, of course, if you've seen Heidi's smile, there's just no other eyes. It's like she just reflects just the smile of heaven in her face. And she holds his face like this and just looks at him, and Tim just melts. When he finally crawls back to the seat, this is what he says to me. I saw him. Who? Jesus. What? I opened my eyes. He took my face in his hands. I felt his skin and I opened my eyes and I saw Jesus. And I'm thinking, that was Heidi. But no, it was Jesus. He shows up in people who are just willing to love And you're going to hug people, and they may not remember your face, and they might not remember your name, but when you hug people, they're going to have an encounter with God. And you're going to impart that understanding oftentimes without even saying a word. And because you love words, you'll you'll release words, and you'll give instruction with words, but instruction will turn into revelation in your arms. Amen. Wow. I want to hug after this. Okay. Somebody else. Life message. Go. Man, more hands are going up. This is fun. See, that's not so bad. Justin, met you last night. What's your life message, man? My life message is Jesus is worthy of our undivided worship. I was actually meant to say devotion, but same thing. Jesus, say it again. Jesus, Jesus is worthy. Is worthy of what? Our undivided devotion. Yeah. Talk about undivided for a second. I think we wake up with one thing on our heart and mind and everything we do is just unto that one thing. And whether that's work or school, it's just all to Jesus. David said, one thing have I desired of the Lord and this will I seek after that I may listen to this dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life for the purpose of what? To behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Now, here's the thing. Could David have possibly known when he said, one thing have I desired, and that is to dwell in the house of the Lord. Could he have possibly known when he wrote that, when he said that, that the ultimate destiny for humanity was to literally be the very dwelling place of God? It wasn't a place David had to go. It was an identity that he just had to surrender to. And I feel like that's who you are. That's it. The one thing that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit and that revelation that you actually are the place where God has chosen to dwell is going to overtake you all the days of your life. Yeah. And he loves where he dwells. And here's the thing. In Revelation 3 verse 20, he says this, behold, I stand at the door and I knock. And if you hear my voice and you open the door, I'm going to come in there. I'm going to beat you down like the rotten sinner that you are. Not what he says. 
Just seeing if you're awake. He doesn't say, I'm going to come into your house. I'm going to expect it to make sure that it's up to my standards. He doesn't say, I'm going to come into your house. I'm going to fix all the broken stuff. And he'll get around to all of those things. He has one interest. Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if you hear my voice and open the door, I'm going to come in. and We're going to dine together and break bread. In Hebrew culture, that meant I want to build a relationship with you. I'm more interested in you than I am in all the stuff going on around here. We'll get to that eventually. But first, you and I are going to sit down. We're going to break bread. And what Jesus did is he went and broke bread with sinners. (gasps) And religion hated it. They couldn't figure out why is this guy breaking bread with these people? Because it was simply, it was like in that culture, if I'm breaking bread with somebody, it shows that I'm in somewhat of an agreement with them. But he wasn't in agreement with their present identity. He was in in agreement with their true identity. In other words, in relationship, you're going to discover who you really are. I'm not even coming in to burn down your house. We're going to build relationship. That's what it means to be the temple of the Holy Spirit. You understand that a mark of a true disciple of Christ is not perfection. It's direction. And direction comes from relationship. And that's the thing. God's given you this revelation of being the temple. And you're going to actually impart direction to people. It's going to be a beautiful thing. You're going to just look at people and suddenly, immediately know, for whatever reason, what they should do. And your your life is literally going to be lived like knocking on the door of people's hearts to introduce them to your best friend, who's become yours. And that's why you have such devotion. Awesome. Awesome. Stretch your hands out toward Justin right now. Father, I pray that an increased revelation of that temple... Yeah, and there's no hidden maintenance fees on this temple. He's already done the work, and he loves where he lives, and your life is not a fixer-upper. I like that show. Jesus, pray for just a continual download of revelation into Justin's life as a temple of the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord. Wow. Good stuff. All right, somebody else, life message. How much time we got? It's not even Sunday yet. Hello. Hi. So mine's kind of twofold. Um, One is it comes from the verse in John where Jesus is saying that um, in this world you will have tribulation, but I've overcome the world. Um, And so it's the fact that he says that you will have problems and struggles. It doesn't say that you are those problems and struggles. Come on. And so I hear, I hear all the time women, talk, especially women, talk about how um, they are depressed and they are anxious. And they put that on as like who they are. But that's not who they are. It's just what they have. And it's a temporary thing. Um, and so, and the other part of it is, I feel like that, that they don't feel worthy of not having that problem. And so... Um, and not and not worthy of not having uh, sorry and not worthy of having like the love of God. And the fact is that they are worthy because God says they're worthy. So it doesn't matter how you feel; it's the fact that God says that you're worthy that makes you worthy, and that's Come what on. matters. So good, so good. 
So she quoted John 16.33, where Jesus says, These things I've spoken unto you, that me you may have peace. Would have been great if you would have just put a period on the end of the sentence and stopped right there. But then went on to the part that you like. This is the part that people don't like. In this world, you will have trouble. Thank God he doesn't stop there. He goes on and says, Be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. Right? Now listen to this. God invented time. Right? Don't ever worry about that you're going to run out of time or that you're wasting time. He can make more, all right? He can do more in 10 minutes than you've spent the last 10 years screwing up, all right? So, so here's the way that God messes around with time tenses. And that's why this verse is so fascinating. He says, in this world, you will have. Now, what time tense is that? Future. In this world, you will have trouble, no matter who you are, Christian or non-Christian. Listen, you and I, we are going to face some difficulties and we are going to face some suffering. No amens on that one. That's odd. Uh, no, here, now here's the thing. Understand, one of the greatest testimonies to the validity of the gospel is when you walk through suffering and you walk out the other end victorious. It's not that you avoid suffering. If we believe that being Christians means that we avoid all pain and suffering, then we will not end up with a gospel that a suffering world can relate to. Right? So, in this world, you will have trouble. But here's the promise. Be of good cheer. He steps on the other side of time over here, and he goes, be of good cheer. I have. What, what tense is that? Past tense. I have overcome the world. So, the idea is this. I've already been in your future, and I've already seen every challenge that you'll ever face, and I've already equipped you with everything necessary to overcome those challenges, and ultimately, when you stand with me, you stand victorious. That's the deal. He's not afraid of the challenges that you're going to face. You don't have to be either. So I break off all foreboding of the future. Some of you just like waiting for the next shoe to drop, the next time that you have to run to the hospital, the next time that you lose a loved one, the next time, that, when's the next moment of pain? And pretty soon you can start living completely like depressed and filled with anxiety because you're just waiting for the next shoe to drop. Matter of fact, some people have become so living in that place of foreboding that they're only comfortable when everything's going wrong. And when things are going right, it's like juggling, like a, spinning a bunch of plates. Something's about to fall any second now. And I believe that freedom in Christ, this is one of the things you're going to impart to people, is you're going to break off that spirit of foreboding off of people. People who had that fear of hearing, in this world you will have trouble. They'll step across the timeline to see themselves already standing victorious because they know that the problems that they're facing are not going to take them out. Big deal. I like that. It's a huge deal. Ooh, I love it when God talks about time. Uh, I, love, I love quantum science. I'm surrounded in, in our church by, by people who are just stupid smart. And um, quantum scientists, smart, crazy smart. And a guy comes up to me the other day and so excited and says, Bill, did you know that they've actually proven that you can bend time? I said, you have my attention. I said, yes, it's called the quantum eraser theory. You guys, any of you like the science stuff? You guys into that? Okay, a few of you. For the rest of you, just get bored for a second and, and follow along with me. 
I'm going to try to make this ultra interesting. Back like 100 years ago, they did a thing called the double slit experiment. Super famous experiment. It's been done millions of times since then. And the point was, is light a particle or a wave? And the answer to the question is yes. In other words, it's a particle that acts like a wave. But the unintended byproduct of that experiment was this realization. And that is that light responds to being observed. In other words, light acts differently if somebody's looking at it. True. That's, that's not even like Christian stuff. That's like quantum scientists. These are like atheists t- saying this. Yeah, it's weird. Like it, uh, it's almost like it knows it's being watched. Okay, so then you can imagine for the last century, they've done tons of experiments with light. And in 1999, they came up with this experiment that became known as the quantum eraser experiment. And it's been done tons since then. And they have proven what this first experiment actually theorized. And this is the way it works. I know this sounds kind of heady, but follow along with me. You're going to find this super fascinating. They fire a single beam of electrons into a crystal, and that crystal splits that beam into two, each one having half the power of the other. So they know they've actually made the split. And this beam over here goes into a box and gets registered on a wall. You can actually see the dot of electrons, the light hitting the wall. And over on this beam, it goes like way across this room, long, long room, and it hits a wall like way over there where inside this box, there are these tools of observation. So when they turn on the tools of observation, the light changes. But here's the crazy part about it. When they turn it on over there, it actually changes over here too. And why is that such a big deal? Well, because this has already happened. What happens over there should not affect what has already happened over here. So this little experiment, simple as it is, proved to scientists that it is possible to make a decision in the present that has an effect on something that has already happened in the past. Even at a nanosecond, this is atheistic scientists, quantum scientists who are going, this is amazing. It's actually possible to make a decision now that has an effect on something that has already taken place in the past. You say, I don't think I can believe that. Well, then how can you possibly believe that Jesus can forgive sin? He's the ultimate quantum scientist. He made the decision. He made a decision before the foundation of the world that was seen by us at the cross that took care of things that had happened in the past and things that hadn't happened yet. You and I stand in in the present, and we populate the past with promises that are yet to be. (laughs) Here, let me just say this. Don't be afraid of wasting time. You never waste time in the presence of God. Ever. Uh, I'm with a group of Korean students one time, and uh, we're, we're doing a, a meeting in the Poconos uh, for a bunch of Korean students and um, uh, in the leadership of this church. And there's a, a young man named Young Song who's sitting next to me on the floor. We've got a bunch of leaders around the room. And I said, guys, I just want you to, we're going to do a little experiment. I'm going to play this song. It's about six and a half minutes long. May we never lose our wonder, right? 
And so playing this song on my iPad, and I said, I want you to close your eyes. I want you to see Jesus in front of you. Just, just let him, just, just imagine him, just see him in front of you. And then, and then let him speak to you. And then let him take you on a journey somewhere. So I play the song. It goes on for about six minutes, six and a half minutes. And all of a sudden, we get to the end. I say, okay, guys, tell me what you were seeing. Tell me what you're experiencing. And Young here, he's not asleep. He is tranced out. And all of a sudden, he goes, whoa, whoa, whoa. And he looks around the room like, you guys still here? How long have you guys been sitting here? Have you guys been sitting here this whole time? And I go, how long do you think we've been sitting here? And he goes, a week. He goes, I haven't been in this room for a whole week. And I'm like, no, it's actually six minutes and 35 seconds young. And he goes, no, I was, I was gone. You, you said, see Jesus. I saw him. He was kind of like foggy. And there he is. And, 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 and we're sitting, he's sitting in front of me. And all of a sudden, I get wrapped around into him. I'm like morphed into him. And he says, I want to show you something. And now my hands are his hands. And now we're creating things. We're making stuff. And he says, and I went through the first six days of creation with Jesus. I, I literally spent six days with Jesus. We're walking through the garden. We're having an incredible time. We spent the last day at rest. And boom, now I'm back here. He spends the next two hours telling us about his first day with Jesus. Two hours, just a small portion of what happened, what I perceived, in six minutes and 35 seconds. When you go to sleep tonight, a couple of people came up to me today and go, I didn't sleep last night. You had me like awake all night thinking. Some of this revelation, by the way, comes to you in time capsule format. You'll wake up at like 3 o'clock in the morning going, whoa, I get it. I just set a bunch of you up now. It's going to happen. Bible says, though, my heart, though, though I sleep, my heart is awake. Though my body is asleep, my heart is awake. I will meditate on you in the night. My heart meditates on you in the night. In other words, can commune with God at this, in your sleep. Try this tonight. Go to bed with the purposeful intention of hearing God, communing with the Lord, and see whether or not you don't get like a months-long vacation in eight hours of sleep. Get a download of Revelation, walking with the Lord. See what happens. Some of you become used to just having nightmares or dumb dreams. But if you go to bed with the intention of communing with God, you may be surprised what happens. Some of you are dreamers, seers in the night season. And some of you, God wants to give you your night seasons back. It's like the devil has stolen some of your sleep. Mm-hmm. Okay, that was for somebody in here. All right, one more. Let's do it. And then we're going to do a mass prophetic activation. Where's the microphone at? She just thought I was done. Right back here, gentleman in the back, right there, yeah. Life message. Okay, so um, it's in Isaiah. Um, Repair the breach, restore of streets of which to dwell. And um, the other verse, uh, every valley be lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low, rough ground become level, rugged places a plain. So Come to on. me, that's always the, uh, when talking of the land, it's the hearts of God's people. The valleys be lifted up. It's preparation for the coming of the Lord, basically. Love that. Yeah. 
preparation for the coming of the Lord. Mm-hmm. All right, a couple of thoughts about this. The first one is the coming of the Lord. I believe that the Lord doesn't come to us until he comes through us. Um, here's, here's the thing. It's like we're looking for him to show up like this. The Bible says in Colossians chapter 3, <clears throat> set your mind, set your heart, set your, set your affection on things above, not on things of the earth. For when Christ, who is our life, appears, we also appear with him. Now, the word when is the word whenever. Actually, it's a continual state of being. It's ongoing. So it goes like this. Whenever Christ shows up, you show up. Whenever he appears, you appear. The more that he is seen, the more you know who you are. Here's the deal. It's like this. The world will not see Christ coming like this until he sees, they see Christ coming in us, through us, to them. We're going to put him on display. You are essentially ushering in the coming of the Lord by putting him on display. It's when people begin to see Jesus in his church, the glory of God in the people of God. This is a huge deal. And, and when, you, when you begin to realize this, then suddenly you, you suddenly begin to realize you have the power to actually shift the topography of the landscape around you. In other words, if this land has been spiritually rugged, every hill be brought low, every valley be raised up. What are the valleys? Well, the Bible talks about the valley of the shadow of death which I think we only ever go through the valley of the shadow of death only to discover that death is nothing but a shadow. So you come up against a mountain, you move it out of the way. Valley of the shadow of death, let's fill that in. We're not even going to visit there. And everything becomes smooth. The highway of holiness is no rocks in it, nothing, you just move it all out of the way. You become a spiritual catalyst to actually change the landscape around you. This is the power of the Prince of Peace in you. Okay. I'm going to finish up with this. I'm just give you this revelation. Then we're going to do a, a mass activity. <clears throat> you are built and designed to carry the glory of God. You were created to carry and put on display the glory of God. Now, what is the glory of God? Well, Moses goes to the mountain three times. And on the third time, he, he makes this request to God. Show me your glory. You remember what God said? I'm going to make all of my goodness to pass before you. So the manifest goodness of God is by definition the glory of God. Okay? Now the Bible says the earth will be filled with the revelation knowledge of the glory of the Lord just as the water covers the sea. Think about this. What do we think that is? Do we think that suddenly, you know, it's like Jesus culture music just starts playing in the air and everybody's like, whoa, it's this foggy presence of everywhere. It's like, no. The earth will be filled with the revelation knowledge of the glory of the Lord, the manifest goodness of God. But where does that goodness show up? Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all you could ask or think according to the power at work within you. Listen, to him be glory in the church. In John 17, Jesus says, Father, the glory that you've given me, I give to them so that they may be one just like we are one. I in you, you and me and I in them perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them just like you loved me. I hope you're following this train of thought. And if you're not, let me go and let me just circle back around and pick you up. On the mountain, 
Show me your glory. I'll make all my goodness to pass before you. The earth will be filled with the glory of God. The glory of God is shown in the people of God. To him be glory in the church. So the manifest goodness of God resides in the people of God. Jesus says the glory that that was given to him has been given to us for this purpose, that we would be one. The first place the goodness of God is shown is in the love we have one for another. The world looks at us and do they see a dysfunctional family or do they see a diversity of thoughts and ideas and perspective yet a family who in its diversity actually has laid down its desire to be right about everything in favor of its desire to be one. If we don't do that, then what we're telling the world is you have to think like we think in order to be accepted by us. You're telling the world that I'm not giving you grace until your repentance qualifies for my mercy. It's like, it's like saying, you know, the Bible says it's the kindness, or the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It's not the repentance of man that accesses the kindness of God. It's not what... It's, it's, it's not what they do that qualifies them to suddenly be loved by us. We initiate with grace. We initiate with mercy, and it begins in the house of God. Bible always says, you talk, you talk about this all the time, and people totally misunderstand this. Judgment begins in the house of God. You know what the word judgment is? It's the word choresis. It means a crisis of choice. In other words, I'm going to choose to love you, and I'm going to choose to not hold your transgressions against you because love keeps no record of wrongs. It's not judgment. The judgment begins in the house of God that I'm just going around judging everybody. It's this. I am refusing to let your transgressions scare me out of loving you. And when the world sees that level of goodness in the body of Christ, the world will go, I want to be loved like that. And when Moses, go back to the mountain again, when Moses comes down from that visit with the Lord, he is literally glowing physically so strongly that they have to put like a sheet over his head so you can have a conversation with him. The Bible says, Jesus said of himself, I am the light of the world, right? But then he turns to us and he says, you're the light of the world. We think he was talking in metaphor? If Moses, under an old covenant, could come back from a revelation of the goodness of God and literally glow, how much more glory ought to be on us who are of the new covenant? Dear friend of mine, Charles Stock, wrote a book called Glow in the Dark. He used to hang out with a guy named Lonnie Frisbee out on the West Coast years ago. Lonnie was a freaky character who who dancing naked on a mountain got a vision of Jesus who said, Lonnie, I have need of you. Go baptize people. And he started throwing people in the ocean and ended up leading thousands to Christ. And my friend Charles was hanging out with Lonnie in a house one time. They were sitting around with jangly, out-of-tune guitar, singing songs. And um, songs were making up because they didn't really have any songs to sing. And, uh, and so there they are just sitting there. And it's so bright in this room that they say, well, can you turn that light off? So they turn that lamp off, and they turn that lamp off, and then they turn this light off, and pretty soon they realize there's no more lights to turn off, and yet they can hardly open their eyes because it's so bright in the room. And suddenly they look around and realize, whoa, it's us! <laughs> what had happened? There was such a unity of heart of people in that room that it had a physical effect upon the atmosphere of the room.
In Acts chapter 2, it says, when they were all in one accord, then the Holy Spirit fell. Ten days, 120 believers in an upper room for 10 days. I've been in some long church services before, but never 10 days. He said, well, when they were all in one accord. What was that? It doesn't mean they all got in the same room. The glory would have fallen on day one if that was the case. These people had all spent 40 days prior with the resurrected Son of God, saw him ascend into the clouds, and remembered, go to Jerusalem and wait till you're filled with power from on high. People who had that experience, it took 120 believers 10 days to sort through their issues enough to where they came to such a place of unity that the Holy Spirit could kiss it with his presence. I'm looking for a day when the body of Christ is so united in heart and mind and spirit that doesn't matter if you're Democrat, Republican, I don't care who you voted for. It doesn't matter what your perspective of the rapture is or tribulation or heaven or hell or all these different things. If you're a preterist, if you're a dispensationalist, if you're whatever kind of isterism you're into, whatever your particular branch of Christianity is, and this is my tribe, I'm a revivalist. I don't hang out with the Methodists. Whatever your ist is, I'm looking for a day when we look at each other and we just see people made in the image and likeness of God, and we just look down at people and be like, whoa, Jesus, you look great in your Joel costume today. We... We just look everywhere and we just see Jesus in people before they even see him in themselves. And we love each other as if Jesus himself was standing in front of us. And we awaken the world to that kind of love because there's a great little little verse that we've turned into songs. It goes like this, that the world will know we are Christians by the love we have for one another. We are one in the spirit. All the hippies know this song. Wow, it's going. And we pray that all unity will come on. And they'll know. That's more than a song. It's more than a song. It's more than a song. I love theology, but I've just about gotten tired of arguing theology. I'm looking for a theophany. Theology is the study of God. Theophany is the appearance of God. And he appears, he appears first in us to a world that doesn't know what he's like. And when we get a revelation of the goodness of God, we will shine again. We will arise and shine for our light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness covers the earth. The Bible says deep darkness, the people, but the glory of God will rise upon you and kings, nations will stream to the brightness of your arising. Woo. Come on. All right. Do we have time for one more act, one big activation? Can we do this? There's a lot of people in this room, so this is going to take some logistical heavy lifting, all right? I'm going to ask everybody to get up and come up and form two lines. We'll have to probably bend them down the end aisles, all right? We're not going to do a fire tunnel. This is going to be different than that, all right? (laughs) Two lines, ready? 
Two lines facing each other. Make sure that you're right across from somebody. (laughs) Make sure you're right across from somebody. Directly across from somebody. All right. (laughs) It's all right. You guys can form your own line going up down that aisle. That's cool. However you want to do it. This might end up being a fire tunnel. I don't know. You never know. Uh. <laughs> one, time, one time on the South Mall, the University of Texas cam- campus, probably like 11, 12 years ago, we had, the, I think, the world's longest fire tunnel. Going in one end, coming out the other was a good two-hour trip. It was so much fun. It was great. We didn't even know what to call it back then. Okay, so everybody's right across from somebody, Right? Now, I want you to just listen to what I'm going to say, say to you. Every single one of you can hear from God. All of you, right? Is Jesus prophetic? Yes. Does he live in you? Yes. Then it's spiritually illegal for you to say, I am not prophetic. This doesn't mean that you carry the office of a prophet. It's very different. It's talking about the difference between a gift and an assignment, right? Today, for this purpose of this exercise, we're focusing on the gift that's available to everybody because of Christ, not the assignment that's only available to a few, okay? But the gift of prophecy is just you catching the heart of God and speaking what the Lord is speaking, right? Everybody that's closest to me, the line that's closest to me here, right here, down in front of the stage, I want you guys to all turn around, face me, You guys turn and face the wall so that you're not looking at the people behind you. People behind you, I want you to switch around a little bit with the person on your right and your left so nobody knows who's behind them, all right? Now, people facing the wall, I want you to put your hand over your heart. I'm going to say a quick prayer over you, then I'm going to give you an assignment. Holy Spirit, by the... Wow. Holy Spirit, come. And awaken the prophetic grace... It comes from knowing your voice, hearing what's on your heart. And God, today, I pray that in this simple exercise, that people would release not just information, but revelation. Bring us that simple, creative, childlike imagination all over again. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. 